Welcome. I'm Hala Abdel Noor, the presenter of Facilitate This, the Group Work Center podcast where we talk with facilitators about their craft with a focus on a different topic each episode. Facilitate This is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and goes out to listeners on the lands of First Nations people across Australia and beyond. Many facilitators work at the teaching end of the facilitation spectrum, delivering material with learning outcomes. This week, sustainability educator Kat Lavers talks to Jim about why she believes facilitation skills make her a better teacher. Welcome, Kat. Great to have you with us on Facilitate This. You're a little bit of a fascinating facilitator in that you range across so many areas in the teaching and the facilitation that you do, from permaculture design and gardening setups and how to do gardening effectively, through to sustainability education in a number of areas and working with refugees. Um, Tell us about how you're able to put your facilitation skills to use in this kind of instructional realm that you work in across so many different areas. Well, thanks for having me, Jim. I guess for me, um, good teaching is also good facilitation and they're skill sets that really mutually reinforce each other. I don't believe you can be a good teacher without bringing in a lot of the micro skills that facilitation requires. Uh, And I also think that teaching skill sets bring a lot to facilitators, particularly in how we clearly explain and give instructions to groups and, uh, and also time management, which is something you've got to be really on top of when you've got learning outcomes as a teacher that you need to get through. We place a lot of store in the group work centre model around interactiveness. How do we bring learners in to the topic? How do we draw on their own expertise and wisdom? Um, How does that play out, for example, in something like permaculture design? Mm, Well, fundamentally, I mean, I really don't see much of a difference in setting up a room and and a group and a space for a facilitation process or for a teaching process. And fundamentally for me, it's about creating groupness, which is this wonderful word that I've learnt through the Group Work Centre, this this feeling of a group where people are safe and supported and they feel um, excited about what's coming next and they know that that they can express what they need to express. They can answer questions without fear of getting it wrong, for example, in a classroom context. So it's all for me about creating this sense of groupness as early on in that learning experience as possible for people. And that can start, you know, very simply from setting up a room where people are able to see and hear each other. And um, so the classic facilitation space when done well will be a circle of chairs rather than rows of chairs. And I'd absolutely encourage that for people in a teaching context as well. And then, um, you know, it starts from the very moment people arrive at that space or even before potentially with the emails or other communications that you're sending out and creating a sense of fun and, and warmth around what they're going to experience when they get there. But as people are arriving into your teaching space for the first time, you know, helping them to um, chat to other people, um, doing things like making their own name tags and uh, having something fun that they can do when they first arrive, all those things contribute to sitting down and beginning in a way where people feel excited and connected and ready to go. Uh, And that, that groupness feeling is just 
something that you need to work on really hard as a teacher if you're going to get the the learning outcomes um, that we have uh, embedded for, for that group. In something like sustainability education, it's a fast-moving area. There's going to be knowledge gaps and fonts of wisdom within any group that you're instructing or leading, yeah? How do you deal with that range of expertise in the room, right through from people who are uh, perhaps a little bit nervous about taking on such a big topic, through to people who think of themselves with a great deal of expertise in some areas and perhaps want to share that with the group. There's a lot going on in that space, isn't there, as a facilitator sometimes? There is, and it's rare that you'll have a group where they are really even and balanced. You will always have people uh, with great experience and people with um, very little experience in the group. And I think one of the first things that we can do as a teacher is name that dynamic um, in the introduction and encourage uh, the people who have expertise already in the area to bring that and share that with the group as much as possible, um, but also ask for their patience while we uh, work from a principle of not leaving anyone behind. And I will actually start most of my longer um, teaching experiences these days by discussing that dynamic and um, by uh, also discussing my ethics as a teacher. And and one of those is to um, assume no prior knowledge in most of the work that I do. Uh, So there's no such thing as a stupid question. And I always encourage people and say that if you're brave enough to ask that question, that there will be other people in the room who are so glad that you were able to ask that and to call me out if I'm using jargon or, or any terms that might not be familiar. And for the people that do have that expertise to share that and also say to people that they're welcome to disagree with me and bring alternative views as well, because that's what creates a really rich teaching space. That One of the, the key expressions that I got from the group work course was the wisdom is in the group. And the reality, is, as most teachers will tell you, is that at least over the long term, that they're going to learn much more from the group than they will from you as a teacher. So doing everything that you can to encourage that sharing to come forward uh, is a big part of, um, of doing good work in that space. I'm sure that from time to time, like most of us, you've encountered an over-talker or someone who gets stuck on a point and keeps going. How do you deal with someone like that in a group where you've got an agenda and you've got a curriculum or a set amount of stuff that you need to impart and you're worried? You start to get worried, don't you, sometimes that your time's being eaten up by a particular person or a particular topic? Yeah, time can be really stressful in a teaching context. You just have to get to some things. You can't leave an incomplete picture for the group. So often I will just firstly, sort of pause and go, can I tell why they are needing to talk this much? Is there something going on for them that means that they need to <laughs> to be constantly talking? And, and so sometimes you'll have a sense of that intuitively. And sometimes I might make a point of talking to them in the break and see if I can learn a bit more about them. But some people, for example, don't have much time with groups that are like-minded and it's a really special experience and the excitement and the enthusiasm and the energy that comes from that is um, is encouraging them to speak a lot. Uh, some people have a need to share the expertise that they have and be valued and recognised for that. And, and they're both great and very normal things to do. So having that 
compassion and understanding for why this person might be speaking a lot can help to inform your response. There, there are some specific techniques that we might use as a teacher. We might or say skills, for or example. skills, micro skills. <laughs> I'm thinking particularly validation. It seems yeah, to have worked absolutely. in a lot of um, a lot of uh, opportunities when this, this comes up. It's the skill that seems to work the best. Yeah, like the crazy thing is actually getting people to say more is often part of that solution and validating the input that they're giving and showing them that it's it's um, really important and it's helping the group and, and that can help to sometimes settle the, the need to be speaking so much. Sometimes we need to just play the role of clarifying and summarising what they're saying uh, so that we can maybe shortcut some of the points they're making and move on to some other things. And then occasionally we might need to (laughs) do something which I find very difficult, I must say, and that's interrupting them if it really is going on and there isn't a, a pause to jump in. So might need to say something like, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, Jim, and particularly because I hate being interrupted myself and you've got such great ideas, but we've just got a lot of other content and other voices to get to. So can we move on to the next point? Uh, Things like that occasionally will need to come into play. But you know what, Jim, I actually often find that when we're doing group work, when we create that that special groupness space, it does encourage people to be more self-aware and to reflect. And we can also encourage that as well, again, by noticing and naming these dynamics that come up in groups. So if we ask people to reflect on their previous experience in groups, what they tend to be like in group work, sometimes people will self-moderate that really well and, and really genuinely for the rest of the group. And and so a common thing we might ask people to do on courses, or firstly, we might talk about the dynamics, you know, are people louder or quieter? Uh, Do they tend to be visionary with big ideas or do they tend to be critics that might assess all these ideas for the group's goals? Or are they people that just really want to go and do things? And, you know, there's no right or wrong there. It's just different strengths and uh, sometimes gifts and, and also challenges that all of those different approaches bring. And that sounds to me like it's an understanding of our self-awareness. Absolutely, yeah? So yeah. when we know where we're coming from, what our triggers are and what we're likely to react to and what styles we appreciate um, working with, then uh, that self-awareness brings with it an understanding of how we fit into a bigger picture, yeah? It does, absolutely. And just as a practical thing, it could be as simple as after naming those sorts of dynamics, asking the groups to have a little discussion around, you know, when I'm working in a group, I really love it when dot, 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 or when I'm working in a group, I sometimes feel frustrated when dot, dot, dot. And if you can encourage a group to have those conversations early and maybe make a little learning agreement about how they'd like to treat each other and and work with each other, then I often find it catches so many of those uh, issues before they can become frustrating points of conflict within the group and just encouraging people to moderate themselves um, in a way that will encourage the group to do its best work. Great. I have to ask this because we've been through the pandemic here. Most of us have 
uh, like it or not, had to do our stuff online. How has that played out for you, Kat? You've kept busy. I'm aware of that. I've seen some of your efforts online. What are the differences? What are the challenges? What are the rewards of working online? Mm. Well, it's been a surprise to many of us how easily we can translate some of our work that we thought had to be done face-to-face into an online context. And there's certainly been some really big advantages. One of the programs I manage has had 11 times more participation during the pandemic year. And that's partly based on opening up Uh, the numbers that can participate and not having the constrictions of a physical room that you have have to fit people into. Which courses have that's (laughs) 11 times subscribed to what it was face-to-face? It's a sustainable gardening program that I run in, in local government. And, of course, gardening itself has seen a boom during the pandemic as we've all spent so much time at home. But of course, also the recordings that people can suddenly access have have just made a lot more people able to participate in these things. I've had people talk to me about access and inclusivity and how previously they were finding it quite hard to get to these courses and workshops because of uh, just the the location, their physical mobility, because they've got young children that they would have to bring along. And so suddenly those people are able to access a much broader range of events and that's been really exciting. From an organiser's perspective, it also can be quite fast relatively and uh, cheap to organise events online. Uh, and really broadens the pool of people who have access to your events, um, even beyond uh, the city that you work in, for example. All of which are really important because if we're genuine about wanting to spread the word about whatever expertise it is, if we're getting more people in, more diverse range of backgrounds, et cetera, it's only a good thing. What are some of the difficulties that you can face online? Yeah, well, obviously there's lots of challenges as well. Um, one of the big ones for me is that you you do lose that ability to create groupness and you can mitigate that, but often we, we miss a lot of the pre and post event banter and the, the lunchtime conversations and the connections that um, bring so much of the value for people coming along to these sorts of events. How do you make up for that? Well, I can say a, a dead set killer of a lot of that is to use a webinar format rather than a meeting format of software um, because people feel like they're supposed to be listening rather than engaging and interacting. So I would try and run an online event as close to a live face-to-face event as possible. And that includes having that time where people join the event or or walk into the room uh, as a first point of, hello, how are you? What's interested you in this event? Oh, this person has just arrived. Hello. (laughs) Um, You know, what's your story? And and so actually logging on early and telling people that you'll be there 15 minutes before and just encouraging some of those conversations between participants and finding out about their story and that can really help create a sense of a group before we start an official experience. And it also means you can tailor what you're saying to the interests of the people that you've met. People feel a little bit more comfortable asking questions because they have met some of the people early on in the piece. Uh, It it just really allows you to make it a more personal experience for people and for people to feel like they're part of a learning community rather than just a group of people who have um, logged on. And I really encourage people to use the chat window all through events. It's such an interesting dynamic 
Jim, because obviously in a face-to-face sense, we would not always encourage side conversations to be happening. But I've actually found them very rich in online events. And for people who can juggle reading a chat window and also following what's happening verbally, it's added a lot of opportunity for people to share their own experiences, share links, you know, reinforce certain points that are being made and also ask questions without feeling like they're, you know, throwing off the the um, trajectory of what's being said in uh, the verbal space. Agree entirely. I think the challenge for us as facilitators is keeping an eye on the chat window while running the group and doing everything else that we're doing, checking on everyone. That can be hard when you're flying solo, can't it? Unless you have an appointed person. (laughs) Tell us what you've done to try and ameliorate that one. Well, firstly, it's wonderful if you have a co-host or a co-facilitator and that's really ideal. I guess it's something I've been training myself to do to be able to speak out a sentence while scanning a chat window at the same time. And I know that's that's a bit of a juggle. Uh, but I think it's okay to be really transparent with the group and say, I'm just going to pause for a minute and go back through the chat and see if we've missed anything that needs to be addressed. And noticing and naming some of the awkwardness that can happen in an online space is fine. And I think it helps everyone relax. Uh, so I feel quite comfortable just pausing and, and telling people I'm just scrolling back through that chat window to check if if there's anything we need to bring up. It's a great fail safe for us, that micro skill, noticing and naming. And it's sort of also almost alongside of, oh, geez, I, that didn't come out right. Or I, I missed something there. The, oh, I've made a mistake. It's okay to make a mistake. And it's okay to notice that things are going differently to what what we'd planned. Yes, yeah? exactly. All of those things. Exactly. I think one, one other thing about being a, a good responsive teacher is, um, yes, you're, you're going to have some key content that you need to go through with the group. But really, try and make space for the group to direct at least some of the time and, and really follow what their interests are and go back and reinforce things if, they, if they'd if like them to be clarified again. Uh, so I do like to, um, yeah, be, be transparent about the, the way that we're planning out the sessions and what we're going to do next. One other thing I want to check in with you, small groups, they are really useful. We've all done this face-to-face and we it's a regular thing. We pair and share and we do, you know, threes and fours, that sort of thing, and they tend to work really well for people people participating, especially when there's an activity, yeah? How does that work for you online? Well, I I do a lot of practical skill set teaching and, of course, that can be a bit challenging. But for discussions, of course, we do have breakout features in lots of platforms that we can use and I think they can be great. It does help if people have a clear time slot and a clear focus for that discussion time and maybe someone facilitating within that small group to help the discussion flow. And a clear set of instructions. Clear set of instructions, exactly. I mean, I was part of one event organised by another organisation this year and we got split into breakout rooms, but there was none of those things. And it quickly evolved into people talking about their weekends and um, some personal discussions, all while other people were in the breakout room who didn't know them at all or any of the people that they were talking about. So, you know, it was a pretty uncomfortable experience, I would say, of feeling like I'm not supposed to be in there even. So, you know, I do think breakout rooms are good if they are well facilitated and structured. 
And there's some form of monitoring where you think it's necessary. So do you drop in? Do you announce that I might be dropping in? I know that's a facility that we can use on Zoom, for example. Absolutely. I think in a face-to-face context and in an online context, it's really good practice to be circulating through the groups and just eavesdropping a little bit in a, in a you know nice way, but and making sure that the group is on track and just sensing if there is any any pause in there, people not quite understanding what they're supposed to be doing or, you know, something that you might need to re-explain and possibly to the whole group as well. Because often you'll need to clarify an instruction for everybody, not just for one small group. So, yeah, breakout groups need to be monitored just in the same way that you would a face-to-face group. Kat, we talked earlier about over-talkers and people with expertise that they want to contribute. What about the other end of that spectrum quiet people who perhaps don't feel part of the group or for their own reasons are reserved. How do you engage them? Mm, well, I, th- I think you've really hit the nail on the head there, Jim, and there can be so many reasons why people are quiet. And one of the most helpful things that we can do is try and discover why that might be so that we can best help them and support them in the group. Fundamentally, though, you've got to create a safe and welcoming group because Every technique you try is bound to fail if people don't feel supported in what they want to say. But, you know, people can be just a quiet person that can be feeling exhausted or unwell that day or have other personal issues. They might not be understanding the content, following it. I've worked with some groups where a couple of people in the group are illiterate and, of course, feel quite ostracised from anything that happens on a whiteboard with Mm. um, any words. They might be understanding everything that you're saying and be completely bored, which is, you know, the opposite problem. Or the style of teaching might not be working for them, might not be engaging them. Or they might just feel that they can't get a word in because of uh, the other people that are talking a lot in the group. So again, I'd be trying to check in with them at some point during a break, ask how they're finding the course and see if it gives me any clues about what might be going on for them. Uh, But then, uh, you know, there's lots of techniques. often find that people are more willing to talk in a smaller group than Mm. in a larger group. And if we break the group up and then ask them to feed back to the group, that allows their input to be heard. I also have found quite often it's extremely important that no matter what people respond to a question, as long as it's, you know, appropriate, of course, that they receive positivity and validation and a very warm response. So if we have people, for example, who are not confident and we're asking questions of the group to encourage them to think and and to share, if we get a response that's not quite right, we need to, of course, tell them that, but we need to tell it with all the the warmth and positivity and validation (laughs) of a yes, (laughs) even for no, that's not quite right. Uh, so that we don't create a cycle where people feel less and less inclined to give input. So I try to be really encouraging of all attempts to answer questions, even um, when they're not actually a correct answer. Because that's a risk someone's taken. And if they're quiet or reserved or not used to being in this situation, um, it's a big effort on their part. So we need to validate them. Absolutely. How do we go about doing that? Well, uh, one of my most treasured mentors, Rosemary Morrow, is a permaculture teacher. She would say that we can gradiate our feedback to people. So we can say, good, good, excellent. Ah, that's the point that I wanted to make. So we can still say 
okay, that was good. Or we can say, oh, no, it's not actually right, but I can understand how you would have arrived at that decision. Or it's very common for people to um, guess that. But no, it's actually not the answer. So so we can still be supportive while also correcting people if we need to. It's just so important that people feel that warmth and validation and positivity from a teacher rather than just a flat out, no, that's wrong. I've been getting the warmth throughout the interview. Kat, as teachers and trainers, we're often asking questions, you know, are you understanding what I've imparted, et cetera? Um, it's an important dynamic as an educator. Tell us a bit about how that plays out in the groups that you work with. Mm, well, something that's quite common for teachers to do when they finish a chunk of content with the group is to go, is that clear or did that make sense? And certainly those are things that I often did when I started teaching. I'm now actually trying to train myself out of them because as a facilitator, when I'm thinking about what's going on for my group, I'm thinking, how likely is it that people will tell me that my teaching wasn't clear or that they didn't understand what I was teaching? And so it's actually not a very helpful question because many of our group won't respond accurately to it. So there are some alternatives and things like asking, what would you like me to clarify or explain differently? Uh, Those sorts of questions are inviting. uh, They're assuming that there will be questions because there almost always will be, and they're really inviting people to step forward in a way that just asking, does that make sense, does not. That's something I think I'm going to try. Thanks very much. Who's driving my bus? We throw light on why we regard self-awareness of our triggers and inner dialogue as a keystone of our work. Yeah, I'm going to tell you about a time when my wisest facilitator was not in control. And it's quite uncomfortable to talk about even still to this day because it's actually talking about a moment when I shamed a student in my group. Uh, Now, I was teaching a class and it was quite a technical class and a lot of content and learning outcomes that needed to be fit within quite a a short window. So um, my timekeeping bear was um, really taking note, looking at the clock and and, um, keeping track of where I was at. And I had at the start of the class, as with most of my classes, encouraged people to put forward their own experiences and add their own tips and also to feel free to have a different perspective to me, uh, all of which I wholeheartedly believe in and support. Now, what happened was we had a person in this group who was chipping in, or say very frequently, all the time not a, a, a sort of statement would go past without some sort of comment. And and that's fantastic and that's exactly what I'd ask them to do. But I was starting to get to the point where my timekeeping bear was um, really stressed about where we were going with this class and whether I was going to be able to fit everything in that I needed to. And so I think without me realising that the frustration there was rising and then there was a comment that actually corrected something that I'd said or, you know, I can't even remember what it was now, but made me just a little bit uncertain about something that I had shared with the group. And my response was to, in a joking way, thank my little fact checker. <laughs> and, oh, God, it still hurts to talk about it, Tim. So I, at the time I, I, I felt like I'd just made it joke and there wasn't a response from the group and I and I pushed 
through with the session. But that night at home, I was still thinking about that. And my gut feeling was that I'd done something terribly wrong there. And what I realized when I was honest with myself is that I'd use my position of rank and power in that group to put down one of my learners um, going completely against my own ethics as a teacher and what I had asked the group to do. And at that point, my, my wise inner facilitator came forward and said, well, you actually really have to bring this up with the group because even if people aren't aware, you may have subconsciously impacted on their safety and um, their feelings of whether they would feel safe to uh, offer an alternative opinion in the group. And what happened so, when you did, when you raised it? So the next class, I took a deep breath and as we were doing the check-in, said that I wanted to bring something up that happened in the last group, something that I'd said that I wasn't proud of. And I, you know, explained the situation and apologised to the student and said, of course, you were doing that because I'd asked you to do that. And it was absolutely right. And it's something that I needed to work on. And that was really well received by the group, I must say. And and by you. Yeah, I, I felt relief in having done that. Um, I felt that I'd learnt that it's one thing to invite critical feedback, it's another thing to take it and to release the ego that always wants to be right, which we all have deep down, I think, somewhere in there. And you know what else I, I thought about here is you know, it's so good to model mistakes as a facilitator and obviously you don't deliberately try and make them. But when you have made a mistake to genuinely, authentically apologise and to draw the attention of the group to that is quite valuable. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, it makes the whole group safer for people when people feel they can stuff up and then uh, still recover from that and still be a part of the tribe. And I guess it's a, it's a comment on where we're at in society at the moment. But, you know, I'm so happy that people are finding it easier to share their voice and to call out behaviour that's not okay. But we're social creatures and there's probably nothing worse than being cast out of your tribe. And for people to feel like that they're, they're, they're never going to be welcomed back after a mistake, I, you know, I feel on a societal level, it pushes people to more extreme views and it, it divides people, it divides communities. And so in a small way, any modelling we can do of making a mistake and owning it and um, talking about that and recovering in the group is a great gift, really, that we can offer the people that we work with. And that story is a great gift too. Thanks, Kat. Facilitate This is produced for the Group Work Centre by interviewer and showrunner Jim Buckle, audio engineer Lloyd Richards, consulting producer Justine McSweeney, supervising producer Mark Spencer, and myself, Hala Abdelnour. We welcome your feedback via email at podcast at groupwork.com.au. For details on our courses and services, visit our website, groupwork.com.au.